We continue in our series of Cloud of Witnesses where Bill and I are taking sermons that are from others. And I heard comments thankful that we don't have to listen to Luther every Sunday based off of last week's, but I hope that you find this one slightly different in nature. I present to you now this sermon. I imagine the letter in the New Testament were sent with different degrees of haste to those who would receive them. But Hebrews, Hebrews is, is very heavy, very ponderous. You put it on the scales and it would take three extra stamps. This is heavy. But even though it cost a lot, I'm sure that they were stamped by the writer on the outside of the folder and sent away special delivery, overnight mail, Federal Express, get it there. And the moment you open it, you know why. It is filled with expressions of urgency. Hold on. How many times in the book does the writer say, hold on? Don't fall back. Don't shrink back. Don't despair. Don't give up. Lift up your drooping hands and knees. Stir up each other. Encourage each other. Don't become discouraged. Don't stop going to your assemblies and worship services. All the way through those words, because the writer, a pastor, is trying to revive a church. So we ask, what's wrong? Well, if you read the letter, there seems to be some heresy in the church. There's some who worshiped angels. From chapter one, we get that, and I can understand that. Angels are attractive. Angels are not born in mangers. Angels are not poor. Angels don't suffer. Angels are not rejected, denied. Angels are not betrayed. Angels don't carry crosses. Angels don't have scars. Why are we following Jesus? Let's pick a bright angel and go with that. I can understand that. But I don't think the answer to the despair and discouragement approaching death of this church is to be found in heresy. Because every church has a little heresy. If churches died because they had a little weird doctrine, none of you would be here. All of our churches would be dead. Just ask around to your friends and say, would you tell me what you really believe? It's amazing. What are you doing in this church? So that didn't kill it, that didn't do it. What about the old life? The old life looking pretty good right now, the former life. There's evidence that that's a problem. The former life before I was a Christian is beginning to look a little better every day and, and that's understandable. Every one of us has time like that because in becoming a Christian, my faith doesn't just solve problems, it creates new problems, new tensions, new difficulties, new burdens to bear. Nobody told me that. Just believe, they said, and I did. Now carry this. So the old life is beginning to look pretty good. But again, that's not killing the church because any church that comes together once a week can't be killed by the old life. 
Every time I'm at the altar and some man or woman hands to me the bread and the cup in the name of Christ and says, this is my body given for you, this is my blood shed for you, the rest of the world just shrinks away, stale, flat, tasteless of no value. So that's not it. Persecution? Sure, there's persecution. You haven't resisted unto blood, but he said you've had your property confiscated. You've suffered social abuse and ostracism. Sure, it's painful and suffering, but why isn't that making the church stronger? Roland Bainton at Yale used to lecture, one thing that will make a church strong and galvanize it as a unit is persecution. People who visit Poland or East Germany and Russia come back almost inevitably amazed at the strength of the Christian people. Why? Because they're not a bunch of fat cats. So why isn't it strengthening the church? I don't think that's it. Now I don't usually have being tired as a theological category, but it is, it, it really is. And we should never just say, never say to ourselves, I was just tired. Well, you're just tired. We don't say just tired. We're a different person when you are tired. Temper, whoo, fuse, the way you talk to your children, the way you talk to spouse. Someone asks you to do something at church, hmm, how many years am I gonna teach the juniors? This is my 36th year. I was promised a substitute when I started keeping the nursery. That was in 1943. <laughs> tired? I mean bone weary tired. Most of the people I know in the church don't turn in the keys, that, that turn in the keys don't have a, a sharp pain. They just have this dull ache all over. I'm tired. Well, what happened? Nothing happened. What went wrong? Nothing went wrong. Did you not like, no, it's not that. I'm tired. And for the Christians in the letter to the Hebrews, the road was longer. The pilgrimage was longer than they thought. When they first started meeting together, they ended every service with that marvelous prayer, Baronata, come, Lord Jesus. But they've just had their 65th anniversary. The little cemetery out back of the church is filling up. And where is the promise of his coming? I didn't think it would be this long. So here's a church for none of these reasons, for all of these reasons, for some of these reasons. Here's a church that has lost its amen. And a lot of churches do that now and again. But the difference is this church is not on, down on all fours looking for it. It doesn't care. The writer of this letter is a pastor, a pastor of the like of which is rare to find. If only I had a pastor like this all my life, I would make it. Just think what this writer does. He holds up Jesus Christ as superior to all other beings, Moses and Joshua, even angels, superior than angels. 
I know he says I suffered death. I know he was crucified, but that was just for a little while. He came from God. Through him all things were made. And after he made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. God never said to an angel, you are my son. Look at what we have, folks. And then with a gentle turn, this pastor says, the one I'm talking about is your brother, made in every way just the way we are. We don't have a a high priest that can't be touched with the feeling of infirmities, never makes appointments. We have one who can be touched with everything you know because in every way except sin, Christ is like us, tempted in every way. There is no more human Jesus in the New Testament than in Hebrews. He cried out for godly fear. He wept and cried and God heard him for godly fear. Of course he suffered death. Did he stop short of tasting everything that you taste? He tasted death for every person. He is like we are. Sure, he is from God and can help us, but he is like God and will help us. Do you see what the writer is doing? Don't give that up. Isn't this an amazing letter? Just listen to what he's doing. Remember the good days. You remember when you served each other with joy and gladness, and some of you still do. But do you think God has forgotten all that? God hasn't forgotten that. The cloud of witnesses, my goodness. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel. They are all around in the bleachers watching to see what we will do. We are surrounded by such a cloud. Now these all died in faith and they died before they received the promise and apart from us, they will never be perfect. Apart from us, they are unfulfilled. Apart from us, they will never know the completion of the pilgrimage. So you gonna quit? For their sake, for God's sake, pick yourself up. Once in a while, he gets a little stern. Once in a while, he says, I want to warn you, if you turn this loose, you might not be able to pick it up again. You remember Esau? Esau sold his birthright for a mess of porridge. And afterwards, he wanted it back, but it was too late. Sometimes you turn things loose and you you don't take hold of them again. He sought it with repentance. He sought it with tears, but it was too late because once the iron is heated, when it cools, you can't heat it again. This pastor is mounting this extraordinary effort to save a church. Why? Why, anybody? Anybody know why he's doing this? A lot of us wouldn't do this. We'd say, nail up the doors. I mean, I've had it. I've tried everything. I've used all my bag of tricks. We've had guest speakers. We've had music groups. We've had choirs. We've had projects, and everything is as dead as four o'clock, and I've had it. So nail it up. Sell the building. 
And some of us who are not that radical feel that way sometimes. Just turn them loose. And we have good reason. We're taught not to interfere in people's lives. People are adult and they're free to make their decisions. They want to quit the church? Let them quit. It's her decision. It's, it's his decision. Let them go. Don't interfere in somebody's life. If somebody says, I'm not coming back, let them go. The church where I belong years ago had the most unusual thing happen. In fact, I've never experienced it since. There was a woman in our church, a young woman, early 30s, whose story is very detailed, very painful. She had married, and she'd been a student of mine. She had married, and their first child was severely brain damaged and died less than two years old. Her husband, unable to take the new emotional demands, as sometimes is the case when you need someone the most, he left and he divorced her. Most of the folk in town thought she had gotten back on her feet. She had gotten a job. It's a good job. She looked professional. And one Sunday morning at the close of the service, she had come down the aisle and everybody was just filled with joy. She's going to rededicate her life. And she turned around to our little congregation and said, I wish today to unjoin the church. She said, I don't know if there is a ceremony for this, but I want you to know that all the things that attracted me to this church no longer exist. I don't believe a word of it. She walked out. The minister fumbling around for his benediction finally found it and said it. And we're all standing there bumping into the furniture. Someone has just unjoined our church she really didn't know how to do it. The way you do it is you just don't show up, right? You, you quit going, you don't pledge, you drop out, all that. You mutter to your neighbors over coffee, but she made a big ritual out of it. She says, I think it is only honest and fair thing to do. I saw the minister later and I didn't know if he knew her story as well as I did because she was a student of mine. And I said, have you talked with her lately? And he said, I hadn't talked with her at all. And I said, you haven't. He said, it's her decision, let her go. I don't go running after anybody. Board up the doors and windows. I don't go chasing after anybody. The pastor of the church of the Hebrew letter cared for the church. It's not limited to him, it's not limited to pastors in my experience. Well, sometimes people think that and others don't care. And the church I belonged to before I came here, it was a large church. You could kind of get lost, anonymous in the church. And I recall one Sunday, I had to leave early to go to a district assembly or rally of some sort. So I told my family goodbye and I started through the back way toward the parking lot. And as I started out the back way, I had to go through the choir room. Choir members were putting up their robes and I passed by this woman I know quite well and she was putting up a robe and I said, I really enjoyed the anthem this morning. She said, I hope so because that's it. I said, what do you mean that's it? She said, I'm hanging it up. She was hanging up her robe. I said, you're hanging it up? She said, I'm hanging it up. I said, well, what's the matter with you? She said, this is my last Sunday. 
I thought maybe she was retiring. She'd been in the choir for about 103 years and her voice was beginning to crack a little. But no, she said, I'm not retiring, I'm quitting. Well, why are you quitting? She said, I finally accepted the question this morning that's been haunting me for years. I sat up there this morning, I looked out at the people out there, I looked at the minister, and I looked at the elders at the table and, and at the ushers and doing all these things, and I finally sunk in on me, who cares? I said, who cares? She said, yeah, who cares? Who cares whether I'm in the choir or not, whether I'm even here or not? I said, oh, you're just feeling bad. Go on home, take some aspirin, have a nice lunch. I left, but I couldn't get it off my mind because, you see, I was a member of that church, and she had just done was indict us all because whatever our accoutrement, however beautiful our choir, mammoth, our organ, big, our budget, if we didn't care for her, we were not a church. We could not assemble in the name of the one who did not break a bruised reed or quench a smoking flask. It worried me to death. I went to the rally. I didn't even have my mind on it. I came home and called her that afternoon. May I come over and talk with you? She said, if you wanna. I said, well, I wanna. And I went over there and we talked. I said, you're wrong. She said, I'm not wrong. I said, do you know what you did? You said to me this morning that we are not a church. Well, I told her a little church history. I said, what you said of us used to be called in the old days one of the seven deadly sins, Akedia. It's translated sloth. And in church history, that's not a good translation. It's like lying in the bathwater a little too long or something. It's not sloth. The word Akedia means I don't care. It's possible. It's possible for a person to walk by the old man feeding the pigeons in the park and say he's not my dad. It's possible to see a child curled up in front of a store hungry and say it's not my kid. It's possible to see a recent widow staring beneath a gray shawl upon a grayer world and say well she's not my mother. It's possible to hurl one final insult at the world and say, I don't care. I said, lady, do you realize what you did? You've charged me and our church with one of the seven deadly sins. She said, so? I'd heard the criticism before, but not from her. I heard it most forcefully ever from my father. My father didn't go to church, my mother took us. But once in a while, the pastor came to the house and tried to talk to my father, made my mother nervous because she knew my father was capable of talking like a Philistine if it came into a little pressure. And sometimes the pastor would bring a guest evangelist by to see my dad. He'd introduce him to my dad and say, sick him, get him, get him. And always, always my dad's expressions were the same. I heard him a thousand times Church doesn't care anything about me. I'm just another name, another pledge. Just another name. What are you after, preacher? What are you after? Just another name, another pledge? What's the matter? The budget a little low? I'm just another name to you. Thank you anyway, Reverend. I heard it a thousand times. 
while my mother wept in the kitchen. There was one time he didn't say it. He was in the hospital in Memphis, Veterans Hospital. He'd gone down to 71 pounds, cancer of the throat. Too late, they said. You shouldn't have been smoking, they said. They had taken everything out and just put in a, a metal tube and he could put his finger over it and make some noise. But mostly he wrote. I walked into his room having flown to see him and in every window there were flowers. Cards stacked beside his bed 20 inches deep. Even on the thing that they swing out over the bed that they place their food, fresh flowers. And I looked at the cards sprinkled in the flowers. I looked at the cards beside his bed. I looked at the cards and every one of them, are you listening? Every one of them from groups or persons in that church. He couldn't speak, so he got a Kleenex box and he, he wrote on the side of it. And because of what he wrote, I took it as an ordination, I tell you this. He wrote on the side of the Kleenex box a line from Hamlet. In this harsh world, draw your breath in pain to tell my story, he wrote. I said, I will. I said, what is it? And he wrote, I was wrong. He was wrong. I got up to leave the lady's house and I said, you're wrong. In my line of work, I travel all over the country. I never go to a town, I don't care how big or how small, but wherever you find need, wherever there's a need of distress, a house in pain or bereavement, if you look, you will see the footprints of Christians who came with something, a word, a pie, a gift, something. I said, people everywhere care. And she said, really? I said, yes. She said, name some. Name some. She wants names. May I give her yours? May I give her yours? Amen. So any guesses on who originally preached this sermon? Nobody? What? Fred Craddock, yes. <laughs> it was Fred Craddock, and if you haven't heard of him, don't worry, you are not alone. Um, he is hardly a household name, but for those who knew him, there is great admiration. He was born in 1928 on a little farm in the hills of Humboldt, Tennessee, a short man with a little bit of a high-pitched voice. He surprised his listeners with his understanding of scripture, depth of wisdom and ability to share stories. Through his narrative style of preaching, he changed our generation's expectation on the way in which preaching is done. I am grateful that he was a professor at Candler School of Theology at Emory University, where Bill and I were both students. He was an artist in his craft up to the day he died two and a half years ago. Aren't you glad that Fred Craddock is among the great cloud of witnesses? <laughs>